thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome back to episode 7-0 of The Real Food Reel. Today we again joined by Katie Pettuccini from Holistic Endurance and Katie and I are having a discussion today on the controversial topic of does this training make me look fat? We will cover all things hormones, overtraining, stress and the elusive number on the scales. Hi Katie and thanks for coming back to The Real Food Reel. Hello. Before we dive in, let's start with a little bit of your um, news, shall we say. So we had you back on, uh, sorry, we had you on the show back in 2015. Tell us what you've been up to and what's happening at Holistic Endurance this year. Certainly, a lot's been happening. We recently got back from a four-day training camp on the Gold Coast. We were lucky enough to have you along talking all things metabolic efficiency it was a wonderful four days. It was a female triathlon retreat where we covered swim, bike, run. We even had a fun aquathon thrown in there. And we had these beautiful yoga classes by Georgia Rhodes and a seminar from yourself, a seminar from me about all things hormones and just general mingling and having fun with like-minded individuals. So off the back of that, we are now running another two training camps this year in Victoria that we're currently planning and taking enrolments for. The next one will be in June on the Mornington Peninsula down in Shoreham, so beautiful hills and scenic winery places to swim, bike, run, and then again in September. Yeah, amazing. I had such a good time on the Gold Coast. It was awesome to hang out with everyone for the weekend, um, for the long weekend. So looking forward to the next two camps. So for any of our listeners that want to get involved, head to the show notes. There'll be some links to find out more about holistic endurance and how you can uh, enrol in one of or both of the June and September camps. Awesome. And obviously you'll be joining us for both of those too. Yes. Super cool. So today you and I are obviously going to chat about hormones, overtraining, stress, and does this training make me look fat? I think it's a great topic. Um, so let's start with that, shall we? Yeah, I think it's more common perhaps than people realise. It's maybe an assumption that if we train well, eat well, that the weight should come off or we should at least maintain weight. Uh, and I know you and I are coming up um, with scenarios quite frequently with clients that that just isn't the case. So tell us a bit about your experience as a nutritionist. I know you've got a high-performance fat loss program as well as a real food fat loss program. What are the most common frustrations you see from clients coming to you on those programs? Oh, gosh, yes, there's so many. So the first one I want to, to start with is the um, the dreaded calorie fallacy, I think, the biggest challenge in the nutrition world is that for five decades we 
believed that it was a matter of calories in versus calories out. So, you know, simply if, if weight loss was your goal, you had to eat less and move more. Or conversely, if you wanted to gain muscle, it was about eating more food. And, you know, as we now know, completely wrong. Um, and as I always say, biology does not equal math, does not equal math. So we can't deduce human physiology to a mathematical equation of calories in, calories out. But it's really challenging for those of us that have been in that era to shift our mindset. So athletes that come to see us at the natural nutritionist, um, you know, there are still many athletes that find it really hard to let go of calorie counting and they find it challenging to, I guess, break that trap of believing it is just about eating less and moving more for our fat loss clients. Um, But another thing I always say is if you need to train to manage your weight, your nutrition is wrong. Um, And it shouldn't just be about having to smash yourself to uh, achieve that goal when the unfortunate irony is that that can often do the exact opposite. Yeah, and I think for some people this is going to be new information and perhaps something they haven't come across before and it's really enlightening. It's also very exciting to come across um, this knowledge to let go of that equation that really doesn't work for us and often creates a lot of stress, which I know we'll touch on later. So if an athlete or someone, say, doing lots of exercise in the gym looking for optimal body composition that is training well and eating well, where is the first place that you would start with them? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, first of all, I will say that everyone is so individual. So the the statements that we'll make today are going to be sort of more general with some fantastic information, but in no way are we able to diagnose everyone or give the answer for each individual. But what I will say is that um, whilst it's never going to be about calorie counting, I think it's really important that we understand our macronutrients. So by macronutrients, I mean carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. A, we need to know what these food groups are. B, we need to appreciate how much of each group we are are currently consuming. And C, it's about manipulating the balances of those macronutrients relative to your goal. So one thing I see in a, in a gym-type environment Let's use um, a male client, for example, who might be looking to put on size, um, even doing a, a, a competition, maybe trying to do one of those body transformation programs um, to win some cash, whatever it might be. If they're looking to bulk up, um, we often see these really generic programs online that have, you know, three, four, 500 grams of carbohydrates. protein and they're actually really quite low fat. For a lot of people, one, that that intake of carbohydrates will never allow them to strip body fat. So if they're in the position where they're trying to lose fat and gain size, the excess carbohydrates will prevent that. And not to mention that the protein requirements are often absurd. You know, Protein in excess gets converted to glucose. It's simple physiology via the process gluconeogenesis. So you can't just eat, you know, 
300 grams of protein and expect that your body's just going to lay down more and more muscle. It doesn't work like that. You've got a limited capability or capacity, I should say. And I think that that these template programs for a lot of people are just wrong. The macronutrient ratio is incorrect. Um, And when it's low fat, it can have, you know, hormonal problems, medium term but short term it's it's hunger and it's cravings and it's this sort of general um, diet like approach where it's just quite extreme to maintain yeah I I see that all the time Uh, and again it comes back to that stress conversation it's that the food preparation involved to make that amount of food from carbohydrates and protein and low fat is excessive uh, and really hard to manage long term. Ten meals a day or something ridiculous, and they're just eating twenty four seven. Lots of digestive stress. It's also you know emotionally stressful. It's stressful on the wallet. <laughs> so much wrapped <laughs> up in that. And then they're doing this training program where they're supposed to do, um, you know, twenty exercises, five sets. Like they're in the gym for two hours a day and. You know, the stress of that will create the hormonal imbalances simply because we know that if there's a chronic level of stress and the adrenal glands are overproducing our stress hormone cortisol, that we will stop any ability to burn fat. It will be a massive barrier. And this applies to lots of different athletes, which we can go into next. Yeah, so tell us more about uh, perhaps some other case scenarios, whether it's women or endurance athletes or people doing a body transformation program. Yeah, I think uh, the next example would definitely be endurance athletes. I mean, everyone knows we deal with a lot of endurance athletes at the Natural Nutritionist and um, we do like to have uh, frequent episodes on The Real Food Real that can educate endurance athletes. And really for endurance athletes it's twofold so the first sort of I guess um, scenario is that conventionally our recommendations for athletes are far too high in carbohydrates and often very refined carbohydrates you know a, a generic carbohydrate loading protocol would be that um up to you know the 10 grams per kilogram of body weight in carbohydrates in, in the couple of days prior to a race and the foods that you basically have to eat to even make it possible to consume that volume is white bread, is orange juice, is lollies, is soft drink. And, I mean, let's be honest, that's not food and in no way, shape or form is that healthy for anyone, let alone an athlete, coming up to competition. And the high carbohydrate intake, again, it'll spike your cortisol, it'll stop your fat burning It'll put you on that blood sugar roller coaster where you're hungry and hangry and tired and craving. And it's a vicious cycle where you look for more carbohydrates for energy because your body cannot access your natural energy, which is your fat reserves, of which we all have an abundance of, but cannot access if we're stuck in that carbohydrate trap. So that comes back to my first point about how it's really important to appreciate what your macronutrients look like. So again, we're not counting calories, but we're really looking to educate ourselves as to what we're eating as a ratio of carbs, fats, and protein. And the second issue for 
um, endurance athletes, and this can apply to, to the gym environment as well, but is the, the overtraining scenario that we see quite commonly in some endurance worlds. Um, training is a stress, and I think even an individual who tells me or, or believes that training is their outlet it's still a stress. <laughs> it's actually yeah. not the best stress relief because it does have a stressful element. And if you're trying to juggle 20 hours a week with a full-time job and a family, or even if it's 10 and it's too much for you, I mean, it's always relative, that stress will come back to the same conversation that we always have about high cortisol um, and, you know, th- that will definitely interfere with your, your fat-burning ability. And I see that all the time. And going back to your um, point about tapering endurance athletes, just to recap and um, solidify that point, if someone did perhaps go from their normal nutrition habits and had perhaps gone down the real food path and improved their nutrition and increased those healthy fats, but then taper week perhaps got drawn back into that pasta party culture, what effect would that have on them on race day? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question and it will definitely be relative to where the individual's metabolic profile was at prior to that week. And what I mean by that is if if you're quite fat adapted and you've been working at that metabolic efficiency for, you know, six months or longer, usually the your tolerance to carbohydrates has significantly improved so the effect is less severe but you know you're still not going to have the digestive ability for those foods so what's really interesting about food our food choices is the food that we consume totally creates the internal environment so it creates which bacteria live inside your gut, in what ratios. And therefore, when you pull out a certain food or food group, what you often do is you also pull out the the enzymes and the probiotics and the digestive environment that you need for those foods. So then when you put the food back in and the environment's different, you feel like you absolutely can no longer tolerate that food anymore. And it's because the environment's different. You don't have the right bacteria, the enzymes, the pH has changed, the whole environment's different and you react. And many people are so surprised by this. They might say to me, you know, we might do real food, which I look at being gluten-free and then they, they have a cheat day or they have a pasta party and they eat gluten and suddenly they're reacting like never before. And they're really quite shocked because they'll say to me, oh, well, I used to eat it before um, and I never had any problem." And, you know, there's many underlying issues there, but really you've, you've become more sensitive to that food because you've cleaned up your nutrition and you've sorted out your gut health and, again, the environment's different. So I actually think that's fantastic because then finally you can listen to the feedback that your body gives you. It's a big red flag saying, don't eat this, it's not food. You don't need to be looking at refined carbohydrates to give you a PB on race day. To me, that's common sense. I know it's not quite mainstream yet, but we're getting there in the developed world. I just think that um, race week is the time to really look at what you have done for the build. 
The biggest mantra is nothing new happens on race day and nothing new happens in race week. You're training less, so you eat less. It's actually as simple as that. There is no need to be over-consuming. Your body does not have unlimited storage for food. And if you try, you'll probably put on weight. And nobody wants to run a marathon heavier than when they started the build (laughs) or, you know, before they started their taper week. Yeah, and it just goes back to that. Same saying that uh, nothing new happens race week or race day. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned red flags. Just to recap for people, I think sometimes the assumption is made that we know what those red flags are and they're not obvious all the time. And perhaps when we talk about gut health, people think or a reaction to food that it's only to do with perhaps uh, bloating and gas. Do you want to expand a little bit more on what other red flags might come up? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. I think gut health is a really interesting topic because you're right. For a long time, we've just thought the gut was like the stomach. So for us to appreciate a food trigger, for example, it had to be really obvious that we got bloated or our toilet habits changed. But because our gut looks after not just our our stomach and our intestines, but it's our liver and it's our pancreas, um, we know that the gut is our second brain and there's a huge um, communication channel to our brain. We know that our Serotonin is produced up to 90% in the gut. Our immune system exists at 80% in the gut. It's so significant and the effects are systemic. And by that I mean anywhere and everywhere. So the red flags can actually be anything that's different. So we look at factors like energy, digestion, sleep, performance, recovery, toilet habits, menstrual cycle in our female athletes, anything that you observe daily, you know, where you get a peak and a trough in energy or where you feel more stable throughout the day. There are so many areas and most of my athletes, well, my compliant athletes, (laughs) create, um, sorry, complete quite a detailed food and symptom log. And it's really useful because if you then try to recall what you had for dinner last Thursday or how you felt last Monday at lunchtime, you won't remember. And it's really important to remove all of the guesswork, jot it down in your iPhone or have a a document on your laptop at work and just make some really simple notes, baseline how you're feeling every couple of days or weekly and you'll, you'll definitely see a distinct pattern. The red flags will be those changes, whether it's positive or negative. Usually we talk about red flags being negative, but I think it's really important to identify where you see improvements because you want to appreciate what's changed as to why you're feeling better, sleeping better, or why you're having a better menstrual cycle, for example. So true. And I just to go over that again, that most athletes or someone on a body transformation program is going to have this in-depth Uh, either online program or a PDF template that they're following for their training and they're tracking, say, their weight weight improvement or their pace improvements and their heart rate, why not do the same approach to their macronutrients? I know, Uh, right? Athletes mm. in general, like bless them, (laughs) predominantly A-type, they log every session, split, heart rate, temperature and performance output 
and then they roll your roll their eyes when you ask them for my fitness pal or easy diet diet diary i'm like use your strengths like it's a personality strength if you like mm-hmm. data i mean it can certainly be a weakness and that's another topic but it's a strength that you like data so do the same for your training as you do for your nutrition and you don't need to do it 24/7 but when you start something new a couple of weeks is essential and then what i get everyone to do and what I do personally is it's a stock take so once a month or once every six weeks you just do your log and you just make sure that all of your macronutrients are in balance you're eating enough to fuel your output you haven't snuck in too many carbs or sugars like little things that as humans can definitely sneak in and suddenly you know you're heading back in the wrong direction so the stock take is the brakes that stops things going too far back to perhaps where they were and where you tried to move so far away from. And it can also allow you to identify the evolution. I mean, nutrition is a massive evolution. If you're starting at the food pyramid and if you're counting calories, if you're eating too many carbs, if you're an endurance athlete and you're smashing gels, like you you have a long way to go and that's totally fine don't expect to change everything overnight and your nutrition should evolve gradually as your knowledge does, as your body adapts, as you're ready to integrate those changes into your busy life. And it's really important that you can do that nutritional stock take to continue to make changes based on your goals and how you've responded to the first phase. And it's, it's step change. Everyone knows step change. You use it in corporate environments, I'm sure training programs that you write for your athletes are very much that way um, as well and I think it's really important to acknowledge that and to keep monitoring it to allow that evolution intelligently. Yeah and you bring up a great point on the training front like as a coach I would find it so valuable to know what's going on in my athletes nutritional world because then training essentially needs to match their nutrition if they've had a poor week of um, nutritional habits and they've quote-unquote, fallen off the wagon, I won't be able to deliver a program that has as much training stress as it did the week before when the nutrition was on track. Their training essentially needs to meet where they're at nutritionally and until those nutrition habits get in place, they're not going to recover as well. It's certainly not going to adapt and if you don't adapt, what's the point? You're not going to improve. Yeah, I agree and I think athletes are always looking for more, um, <laughs> kind of ignoring the foundation. So, This is another um, conversation that I have all the time and I think it's looking at what the foundations are and always having those building blocks in place. So Jerf or Real Food is always the bottom foundation. It's what you build the house on, so to speak. And then the second layer is gut health. The third layer is the lifestyle. And then from there we can look at doing other things whether it's you know training and supplements and building that house but we can never neglect the bottom layers the foundation or or what will happen everything will topple right so I think it's really important when we're talking about your comment to a training program that 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 is never the priority number one because it doesn't Mm. happen on its own, right? It's not going to work without real food and gut health and lifestyle changes. And I think that's where we can sometimes um, 
I guess deviate from. We get lazy or we get a bit complacent um, or think that maybe we can take some supplements um, and that's enough, which which is not the case. We've always got to come back to those foundations, priorities one, two, three, and then build on from there. I think that's so important because I think most uh, endurance athletes particularly that are training in excess of 15 hours a week on a you know standard long course program, in their minds, and I hear them say this, it's like, oh, I'm training over 15 hours, surely I can just eat what I want. Mm. And that's looking at um, the house upside down essentially. Yeah, that's so true. They think they can get away with it. And, you know, some people can. For a short term, they think they're lean and fast and fit and a little bit indestructible. But I believe, unfortunately, it's not a, it's not a matter of if but when. Totally. The house is going to topple. And what I think is really fantastic, um, and I know you said this as well, what I see a lot is that people are – really looking at their athletic longevity, not just podium, podium, I can't even say that word today, getting on the podium, going to Kona, whatever it might be, getting on stage in a sparkly bikini. I think what's really important is that we look at, yes, fantastic performance and recovery goals now, but what are we doing to our health and Mm. how can we look in or look after our athletic longevity? And you know, that's why we've got to have these foundations in place. Absolutely. I just, I, I think this is to save more athletes from the frustration of losing their body composition when they feel like this fit athletes, but they're not healthy. Mm. And so in the lead up to a key race, they find themselves putting on weight or post race, it's a big blowout and they can't lose it because of all the stress that went onto their body during that big build and during, uh, post-race that wasn't effectively recovered from. Mm. Previously, you uh, touched on lifestyle factors. Mm. Let's go into that a little bit more and how that impacts someone's weight management. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the biggest lifestyle factor is looking at the art of balancing all of the goals. So like we said before about exercise, that it might feel like a stress relief when in fact it's a stressor. Mm. So how do we balance out that? We can't just be all yin. We can't just all be yang. So we need to have that really nice balance. So for an athlete that's doing lots of cardio, um, endurance training, for example, then, you know, Doing more cardio is not the answer. I think coming and looking on the other side and doing some yoga, some Pilates, some strength training, some walking, that can be a way that exercise can look like a stress relief but in a different form. But the benefits of the yoga and the more holistic avenues is that it acts as our stress management. Mm. So if we're stressed by eating refined carbs or if we're stressed from overtraining or whether it's life or relationship or all of the above, the lifestyle factors are the management of that. And stress management, I mean, you only need to start your research online to look at the benefits of meditation and mindfulness for productivity and performance and recovery and long-term health, longevity, absolutely everything. The research is clear 
and it actually doesn't even need to be a yoga class, but it needs to be some sort of a practice that balances out the other avenues that you commit to for your athletic pursuits. And the same applies to someone in the gym. You know, it's fine to lift heavy weights and it's if you want to have a goal to get on stage, then that's great if, you know, that floats your boat. But how do you balance that out? So you need to look at how your lifestyle can complement your goals rather than just destroy them, I guess. Absolutely. And I think this is where trainer and coach education comes into it because we are the ones facilitating these programs. And as we've spoken about um, us lovely A-type athletes, we're very good at following programs to a T and doing what our coach tells us to do majority of the time. And that's where I think if a trainer can incorporate that holistic approach to include either a yoga session a week, yeah. uh, some mindfulness walking, trail walks out in nature, turn off the watches, I wonder what get that away was on my from program. data. <laughs> it's amazing. I've really enjoyed watching our athletes go through this evolution of stepping away from the data and the hardness and the black hole and the red line mm. and actually embracing it and enjoying it. Obviously, there's a little bit of resistance in the beginning, like how do I do this? You've programmed me to go and play mm. and roll around and crawl in the sand and go out with the kids on the playground. I don't get it. But eventually they do and they embrace it wholeheartedly and really enjoy it and they're still getting that base fitness and it's that balance of all the hard training that they're doing. Yeah, totally. And it goes back to what you said before. Fit does not equal healthy necessarily. I mean, it mm. can and it should. And that's why we need to look at balancing everything out and allowing our, our lifestyle to look after our athletic pursuits because we can be fit and healthy, but not if we're stressed and consuming the wrong foods and we've got these underlying hormonal imbalances or we're overtraining. It just it just won't lead to those goals um, and it certainly won't look after your recovery or athletic longevity. One of the other things I wanted to talk about was the number on the scales. Yeah. Because I think this goes back to our calorie counting myth that we discussed, which is certainly wrapped up in the low-fat era of the last five decades. I mean, I, I'm with Phil Maffetone on this. Phil um, wrote a fantastic article last year about low-fat being dead. And mm-hmm. I think that we can safely say that 2015 was the year that finally knocked low-fat off the platform but again like our calorie counting myth it's really hard to change a mindset that has been indoctrinated into that world that we all grew up in you know our generation and the one before is um has been subject to that for their whole life and i think when we when we talk about training and and body compositional goals it it can come back to that calories in, calories out scenario and then the expectation that if we eat less and move more that the number on the scales will just drop off and that there's so much wrong with that. I think firstly, if you're weighing yourself more than once a week, you're setting yourself up to be stressed and to have the unfortunate irony of doing the exact opposite to what you're trying to achieve but b if you're only ever looking at the number on the scales you're absolutely setting yourself up for disappointment because Mm. the kilogram number does not separate composition does not say 
fat to muscle and it, it won't be exponential in loss or it won't be exponential in gain. And I think like we've just got to be really mindful to manage our expectations here because again, if we're just stressed about this number that really doesn't mean a thing, then the underlying hormonal issue, the cortisol, um, and that the insulin that that creates will be that self-fulfilling prophecy and will just be in a vicious cycle and feel trapped. I do find it really interesting how much importance we will put on a number of a machine mm. that is more than capable of being wrong, mm. uh, not just scales. It can be the same as if someone did go into more in-depth testing and, say, get a uh, bioimpedance analysis that does look at muscle mass and body fat. Yes, that's a great way to get an overall picture of where you're at in more detail, We've got to make sure that we don't get caught up in the precision of those numbers because there is error mm. in technology and we really need to look at how we feel with how we look and how we perform as a greater measure and get a little bit more intuitive about it. I've had quite a few breakthroughs with athletes just in the last three weeks really putting my foot down on the breakup with the scales. Yeah. And within a week, they're saying, I feel so great. Why didn't I do this before? I don't know if my weight's changed, but I feel fantastic. Yeah. It's, just, it's, one... it's such a sense of freedom, isn't it? Mm. And I think that's really important because there is so much error and fallacy connected with our relationship with the scales. And not to mention that what really counts is, you know, A, how you feel, as you say, but also your clothes are going to tell you a lot. Everyone that goes to the gym or runs or does triathlons wears some kind of lycra at some stage <laughs> that is a dead giveaway to what your composition's doing. And that will tell you a lot. And you really need to be mindful that particularly if you're starting out and, you know, maybe you're getting in the gym for the first time or you're following a properly periodized program for the first time, you know, you are going to be putting on muscle and that that's twice as heavy as fat as we know. Mm. So you'll, we might even put on weight. And I've seen so many side-by-side -side before and after photos of people that are either heavier or the same weight and they look like a completely different person, more toned, no muffin top, great, like whatever their goals are and the, the scales haven't changed. Can you imagine if that person only tracked their progress by the kilogram number? Absolutely. And that was me. Right. And uh, breaking up with them was just so much of a relief and took away all that stress. And I did that a number of years ago and then recently achieved my, I guess, my best body composition probably of my life. And I thought, mm, this will be really interesting. I'm just going to do an experiment and jump on. I dug them out of the garage and I weighed heavier than ever. Mm. Like, right, there mm. we go. There's the proof. I feel great. I've got lines on my stomach. I'm toned. I feel awesome. I don't need that validation from that number. And it's, I never thought I'd get to that place, which is uh, very nice. Yeah, and that, that's an evolution as well. And it's, in no way am I expecting someone to be like, oh, okay, cool. Steph says the scales don't matter. I'm cool with that. It's not going to happen. Like there's yeah. absolutely going to be a process to that. But the number one step is to acknowledge the difference in muscle to fat, acknowledge the importance of other measures of health and wellness, including how you feel and how your clothes fit, and to start to significantly reduce the frequency at which you jump on the scales. I mean, I even think once a week is far too much, but that's a good place to start if you're doing it more frequently than that. 
I would tend to agree. And if mm. someone is wanting to set, perhaps bridge away from that habit, I'll often recommend just taking a couple of circumference measurements so long as you can do it accurately and not get too tied into those numbers. That's a nice way to step away from the scales but still have a measurement if you feel you need that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's recap. So Training, making someone fat. Yeah, so I think it's really important to look at the underlying hormones um, because that will be the barrier. As we know, it's not calories in, calories out. Um, But one thing to think about with the the vast number of hormones that could be influencing things is it it can actually be really helpful to, um, to identify what the issue is, if you've got those foundations in place, if you've looked after your real food, your gut health, and you've made some lifestyle changes and you're managing your stress, but you're not getting results, don't keep heading, hitting your head against the wall. Let's, let's acknowledge that there can be a big roadblock there that it's important to identify so you can treat and support. And that's why I think functional pathology has such a fantastic place within this whole conversation um and certainly for identifying any influence of overtraining stress and of course the hormonal imbalance that that can create yeah and i think really important to preface that pathology needs to essentially come after we've got all those foundations Mm -hmm. in place Get those things right. Look at the difference of real food, increasing healthy fats, getting the macro percentages right, implementing some lifestyle factors, and then get a, a real picture of, of what's going on. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I said before about those foundations. Absolutely, are they the priorities? And then we can add on if we need. And, and testing won't apply to everyone. Um, but, you know, Certainly from a stress point of view, a simple adrenal hormone profile can be really beneficial to have a look at if there is high cortisol that will be influencing the insulin levels and preventing the fat burning or if there's really low cortisol, which can offer an explanation for fatigue or um, lack of adaptation to training, addiction to to coffee or sugar (laughs) cravings and a lot of... um, sort of I think common scenarios that are often interpreted as normal or just part of the sport or, uh, you know, just a result of training 15 or 20 hours a week. I think it's um, really important to avoid that trap of justifying how you feel when if there's an underlying reason that you can identify quite simply, do it. And then it can be treated and managed so that ongoing you avoid getting back into that imbalanced physiological state. Yeah, I know you've covered that on quite a few podcasts mm. in the past. So if people want to go back and listen to some interviews with Phil Maffetone and I believe myself back in episode 30, we touched on that in more detail about overtraining and cortisol and the impact that that has. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the episodes will be in the show notes. Great. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to add? Um, I think just in terms of action steps, it might be really nice for us to just look at how we can summarize this and look at what the the steps can be if if 
our listeners are identifying that perhaps this is um, their red flag, maybe offering them a potential explanation for where they are currently, some action steps are going to be um, firstly, Spend some time working on those foundations, so food, gut health, and stress management, whether that's with yoga or meditation. Um, That would be number one. I think two, reach out to your coach or change the, the, the training that you're doing. So if you feel like it's too much at the moment, if it's contributing to the changes in energy or you're stressed about the the volume, you've got to speak up. Like your coach isn't trying to do it deliberately. They just probably don't appreciate how, well, they don't yet know, I should say, how that seems to you. So it's really important to speak up and make some changes because less can be more. When you train efficiently, when you train intelligently, less can absolutely be more. And that's a mind shift or mindset shift in itself, as we've spoken about with Dr. Phil. But that's definitely number two, because if you keep trying to do all the training or hit the numbers or smash yourself, you'll just end up in a deeper hole. And then that's a much bigger journey to get out of and really one that you don't want to bring upon yourself. I do hope that that part of the endurance world and even body compositional training dies like the low fat era did <laughs> yeah because I really want to see that shift into mainstream endurance training that we don't have to do immense volume to get fitter faster stronger yeah you can be efficient and we see it all the time on the programs that we write but unfortunately that's not the common way to do it it's not but I know um you're aware of this as well um how Pete Jacobs has completely overhauled his yes. training and nutrition. Oh, so and whilst, happy. I, whilst I don't support a vegan diet for everybody, I think what the real message is is how much he's been able to step back from hitting the numbers and smashing himself and enjoying life and doing less but but getting the results and feeling better and being fit and healthy. I'm so grateful that he's sharing his message because he's obviously been on the podium, won the world champs and is well respected in the endurance world and I hope that his message will leave that legacy so that others don't have to go through the significant health struggles that he's been through to, to finally realise there was another way. Absolutely, and that's what drives me every day as a mm. coach, just to prevent that. And we need to start at grassroots mm. because I know you and I are dealing with um, a lot of people in their 30s and 40s who are coming to us broken, but we can essentially step back earlier in their training life to prevent that oh absolutely yeah and the last sorry your last point okay the last action step I was going to say is to really acknowledge the hormonal influence like we said with with your macronutrients you've got to look at what your carbohydrates are so you're not um, constantly spiking your insulin you've got to acknowledge the significance of stress and how that affects your your hormones, your cortisol and your insulin as a result and you've got to appreciate that the hormonal side of things will be what creates your goal. It's not about eating less or doing more. It's not about the the number on the scales. It's about controlling your hormones and knowing that if you do, with all of the foundations in place, fit can equal healthy and your training will not make you look fat. That's the winner. Yeah, absolutely. So in the show notes, we'll pop lots of information to previous episodes for those of you that are just looking to catch up on a few of the subtopics from today's 
episode. If you have some other questions or topics that you want Katie and I to cover, please send us an email to rfr at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. That's our Real Food Real um, contact. And we'd love to hear from you as to what you're looking to hear from on the show. Um, Obviously, 70 episodes in now, and we'd certainly love to keep sharing topics that you're super interested in. Um, And we'll also put some information in the show notes about holistic endurance and the training camps that are open to men and women in June and September this year. And thanks for joining me today, Katie. It's great to have you on the show. And I will talk to you again very soon. Thanks, Steph. I look forward to picking your brain further. (laughs) Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.